Good morning, guys, and everybody online. Thank you for joining us. I just want to re-highlight two things before I get started on that video. The first is um, Mark Regston is brilliant in terms of helping us figure out how to raise kids. Uh, I've raised four, um, and many of you know them, so you can decide how successful that venture was yourself. <laughs> but I will tell you, it was not an easy venture, and so we're super excited to bring them back. This is a unique opportunity for you to ask an expert a specific parenting question. We actually got an extension on this from Mark because COVID is running so rampant up here. Our communication is not what it should be. But today's the last day. So if you're gonna be coming um, to any of the parenting seminars, we would love for you to get that question in today. Go to mhcc.life, click on the Mark Gregston card and you can do that. Also, you're gonna hear a little bit about groups in my talk this morning. But this new group, um, Trauma Reboot, uh, my friend Gary Borchening has been a mentor of mine in my life for 15, 20 years. I talk to him every other week. Gary's highly involved in the military. This started as uh, for soldiers, helping them overcome PTSD. But the principles were, were working so well with the soldiers. What they realized is so many of us have had significant trauma in our life from childhood into adulthood. I was doing a, a counseling session with a young woman um, doesn't go to our church, doesn't even live here, okay? So it was a Zoom counseling session. But she's a young woman, and she's experienced rape twice. And I'm, I'm going, there is so much that people need help overcoming. Um, and so this trauma reboot class, uh, I really think, could be a way for us to really help. I mean, that's not just true of people in the church. Obviously, it's true of people outside of the church. So we want to reach our community with this gift. Help us do that. Stop by and see Jana on your way out. Today, we all need to go home. America's team is playing at 4.30, and I know you're all going to be rooting for, uh, for the Dallas Cowboys to get their rightful place back in the Super Bowl now that we've moved the Patriots out of the way. Can I get an amen? amen. I got one. I'll take it. I got two. <laughs> all right, so I was really happy this week because um, my, I'm a, a fan of my beloved New York Mets. Many of you know that. And my Mets, unlike that other team in New York, the one that plays in the Bronx, my team, the Mets, we hardly ever retire a number. Now, I know before you say it, Yankee fans, we don't really have that many numbers worthy of retiring. I get it. But this week, the Mets finally announced that they're going to retire the number of Keith Hernandez, um, the first baseman on the 86 team, number 17, in my opinion, long uh, overdue and well-deserved. Now, here's why it's interesting, if you're a Mets fan, the Mets only have three player numbers that have been retired. So the amount of numbers, there's a couple other numbers up there, but in terms of players that have played for the Mets, there's only three. I was watching the press conference when they were asking Keith Hernandez his reaction to it, and he was really, really blown away by it. And I mean, he's got to be going, wow, you're going to look up there, there's only four numbers of players that are up there, and Keith is getting older now, and and I, I was sitting around going, man, if I was him, I would be going, how, at, this is literally, I was watching the press conference, I'm going, how cool would that be? Knowing I'm an older guy and seeing that number get put up there and then thinking, that number's going to be up there for, for like 10, 20, 50 years from now. People are going to come and they're going to see 17 hanging from the rafters. And, and parents will be telling their kids, oh, I remember seeing Keith play. I actually found myself getting a little jealous. I mean, they don't retire pastor's robes, right? I don't even wear a robe. I'm not sure what they would retire. I was thinking maybe this, we could put this somewhere. 
But the truth is, right, I mean, pastors shouldn't have anything retired. My goal, our job isn't to make a name or fame for ourselves. We are to be, as someone once said, nobody's telling everybody about somebody, Jesus of Nazareth, the only one worthy of a name and fame. But with that said, right, there is something pretty cool about leaving a legacy behind, something that outlasts us, that lives beyond our lifespan. Benjamin Franklin had some great advice when it came to this universally shared desire. He said, if you would not be forgotten as soon as you're dead and rotten, either write things worth reading or do things worth writing. I like that. Pretty good. Inspirational, really, right? I'm just not sure how broadly we can apply that advice. But then it hit me specifically this week as I was looking at picturing, you know, my, my, my robe up there in the rafters. When it comes to leaving a legacy, when it comes to leaving something that's going to linger long after I'm gone, and, and you too, well, after you're gone, all of us have the opportunity to leave something behind that lasts and lingers and echoes far more than a jersey number. It's lives, it's, it's human beings, and me, for me specifically, because the Lord has blessed me with children, it's my kids and their kids and their kids leaving a legacy, an inheritance in human beings. It's not just limited to our children either. We have a responsibility, all of us, a shared responsibility to leave a legacy beyond just our immediate family. Remember last week I asked you, one of the underlying principles of this series is thinking about writing your own eulogy. And you'd have four different people that would come up and speak, your spouse and your children, but also people from, from work and people within the community where you live and serve. We have to invest in these lives. But today, today, later on today, we're gonna, we're gonna be doing a child dedication. But today, I wanna take the opportunity to address parenting specifically. Because you can't deal with legacies without dealing with parents. And even more specifically, just one element of parental legacy. Now, for some of you, Right? This is going to be a look back when you hear these things. It's going to be a look back to how you were raised. As I'm talking, you're probably going to think, well, my parents got that right or my parents dropped the ball on that one. For others of you, right, you're going to be looking ahead. I'm thinking about my daughter. She's six months pregnant, right? How is she going to raise her child, her little girl? How is she going to hand off the baton? Now, the writer of Proverbs this ancient book of wisdom right in the middle of the Bible. Here's what he wrote. A good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children, but a sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. Now, super interesting on two accounts. The first is obvious, okay? A, a good person's inheritance. What he leaves behind, it impacts generations. Their children's children. We sing of that one when we sing the blessing and your family and your children and their children and their children. Sociologists actually believe that a parental blessing can last for five generations. Last week, we looked at three very, if you weren't here last week, please go. That was one of my favorite talks of all time. We looked at three very real families and saw that the way one person lived his life impacted real families for hundreds of years. See, a good person leaves an inheritance for their children's children. But the less obvious part of that proverb it, it, and I think it's interesting, is that a righteous, a good person's inheritance is not actually delineated. The sinner's is, right? The sinner's, the sinner's um, legacy is his wealth. 
right? And since we're all sinners, I think what the Scripture's teaching is what you and I have come to realize, hopefully. I mean, most of our lives, when people talk about leaving an inheritance, they're thinking about leaving money. Somebody rich dies. I remember when John Madden died the other day, I thought, maybe this is just me. I wonder how much money John Madden had. I looked it up, right? Uh, and I think the answer was $200 million. So good for John Madden's kids, right? Somebody rich dies, it's not long before that question comes up. I had a guy I worked with in the investment industry. He just had one child, and he loved his child a lot. And uh, he, used to, he, he called me I-Man, and he, was, he, was, he had a southern accent. I-Man, I only need $5 million more million, and then I'll be good. I'm going, wow, just another $5 million and you'll be good. See, my buddy's inheritance was his fortune, and that's fine. That's not bad. I mean, here's the truth. Most of us are going to leave millions of dollars behind, but we'd probably all like to leave something. But the Proverbs never mention money when it comes to the good person. Is it possible when the Proverbs were talking about an inheritance of a, of a righteous person, are they supposed to or are they expected to leave something more? It's a fascinating greeting that the Apostle Paul gives to his protege, Timothy. Some of you know Paul spent most of his years traveling about and starting new churches. Most of what we call the New Testament are just letters that Paul writes to these churches he started. But Paul didn't do this work by himself. He, he had a team of co-workers in the mission that would travel with him. Uh, Barnabas, Silas, and Timothy. Now the New Testament, it actually, two of the letters aren't to churches. They're letters that Paul specifically wrote to Timothy. The second letter, which we've come to know as 2 Timothy, it's actually the last letter that Paul ever writes. Here's how he opened his final letter of all those letters in your New Testament. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, in keeping with the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dear son. Now, Timothy is not Paul's biological son. Paul is not his biological father. But the opening is just another reminder for all of us about the impact we can have on others, even if they're not our biological children. We can all parent. We can all parent, even if we don't have kids. Paul was Timothy's spiritual father. And, and, and this is my friend Gary that I spoke about before. I, I have this relationship in my life. And trust me when I tell you, Paul had a significant impact on Timothy's life. I mean, he left him a rich inheritance. Timothy carried on Paul's legacy. But as much as that's true, check out these next lines from Paul. He goes, I thank God whom I serve as my ancestors did, there's legacy, with a clear conscience as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. And so he thanks God for Timothy. He says he longs to see him. And then here's what he says. He goes, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois, and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. See, Paul might be his spiritual father, and that's a big deal. This is the Apostle Paul. Think about this. You're not getting a better spiritual father than this. He met the resurrected Jesus. He wrote most of the New Testament. Paul is the most, think about this, he is the most influential follower of Jesus that has ever drawn air. I mean, Paul certainly impacted the life of Timothy, but Paul recognizes something, that the people that had the greatest impact on Timothy and his faith, it was his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice, his parents and his grandparents. 
Even Paul, the most influential Christian who ever lived, could not and did not have more influence on Timothy than the legacy of his parents and his grandparents. Now, I've spent, you know, I've got four kids and, uh, and a grandchild on the way. I, I've spent the week thinking about this. I mean, I, I, this is true. I'm not blowing spiritual smoke at you. If I could only leave behind one thing, if my inheritance and my legacy could consist of just one thing, I want you to think about this with me. Like, what would it be? Right? We talked about money. That could be one thing. And the more I thought about it, I'm just... I, I really mean this. I, I can't think of something better. Maybe you, you can convince me of something. But if I could only leave one thing, it would be my faith. I really believe that Jesus is who he said he is. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. So, sure, of course, I want my faith to be my legacy, my children and my grandchildren's inheritance, because I take Jesus at his word. And I mean, I really love my kids, and I want to spend eternity really badly with my kids. I want to be with them forever and ever and ever. And according to Jesus, it happens by faith in him, the faith that I have in him, the faith I want to hand off and pass down to my, my children. But it's not just about eternity. I mean, that would be enough. But the truth is, if I was going to leave behind something, the reason I would like to leave my faith behind, right, is that for this life alone, there is nothing more important than I could leave my kids and my grandchildren than faith in Christ. I mean, in terms of inheritance, there is nothing of greater value. Money, I mean, we just saw it. It winds up getting into the Proverbs writer says it winds up in somebody else's pocket. It's so fleeting. It's so easily squandered. It's wasted. It's one bad investment from a grandchild from being gone. Not only that, <clears throat> I mean, you guys, a lot of you know this. Do the work on this. There's plenty of, plenty of evidence that you should be more fearful about uh, the damage of leaving too much money to your children and grandchildren. You should be more worried about that. Faith, this deep personal relationship with God through Jesus. It's priceless because it doesn't rust. It doesn't rot. I mean, if I could hand down a legacy of faith to my kids and my grandchildren, do you know what that means? That means when I'm gone, they're never going to feel alone. It would mean that on their most hopeless days, they have hope. That in the midst of the worst storms in their lives, they could have peace. It would mean that they grow up rooted in an identity of who God says they are and not their friends, not social media, not their accomplishments. It would mean that when I'm gone, they would have courage and boldness and not fear and worry. Literally, a legacy of faith, an inheritance of faith, it is priceless. What else could I want to leave more? There is nothing of greater value or significance I could leave. Billy Graham summed it up best. Here was his quote. The greatest legacy one can pass on to one's children and grandchildren is a legacy of character and faith. Now, next week, we're going to begin to look at the character part of legacy. What it looks like, right? What faith actually is. Next week, we're going to look at the what in the discussion of what it is I want to leave. But today especially for all of you who have children and grandchildren, I want to focus on the how. How do you leave a legacy of faith? 
I don't know a Christian parent who doesn't want to hand down a legacy of faith, but I guess almost all of us are unsure about how to do it. How do you do it? I mean, you guys are aware of how many of our kids and grandkids walk away from faith, right? You should look it up. It's significant risk. How do you leave a legacy of faith? Is there any plan? Now, if you know me, I'm a science guy, I'm a data guy, and, and I think that science and data do nothing but over and over prove out the wisdom of the scriptures. And, and the scriptures have detailed, and the science has now confirmed how to do it. And I just found it so convincing and convicting and inspiring. I couldn't put this book down this week, I just kept going over it. Um, I want to share it with you today. Parents, grandparents, not to be grandiose, but I don't think you're ever going to sit through a more important session than this. There's this wonderful scriptural picture of the idea of our shared desire of how to pass down our, our faith. It's in the Old Testament book of First Chronicles in chapter 28 and chapter 29. I'm going to put it up so you can read it along. Israel's great King David, some of you know David's backstory, right? Same David who slayed the giant Goliath. Same David that fell into sin so horribly when he slept with Uriah's wife, his, his friend and, and a soldier, and, and then he had Uriah killed to cover it up. It's the same David who wrote most of the Psalms. So many of those Psalms praising God, so many of those Psalms full of repentance for his sin. Next to Jesus, David is the second most frequently mentioned person in the Bible. And David has a faith that he wants handed down to his son. He has the same desire you and I do. One of his sons was named Solomon, and we're going to pick up the story. David is now near the end of his life, and he wants to hand his faith off to his son Solomon. So he calls, the scriptures say that he calls all of the officials of the nation of Israel together from all levels. So this giant gathering of all of the officials in Israel is taking place. And here's what happens. The scriptures write, King David rose to his feet and said, listen to me, my brothers and my people. I had intended to build a permanent home for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. So I made preparations to build it. Now, this ark here, this is essentially a, a gold-laden box. This was the box, this is the ark Harrison, Raider and, or Harrison Ford and the Raiders were looking for in the movies, right? It contained the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, and it's where God went to meet and talk with Moses. David desired to build a house for it, what would later become known as the temple. But God said to me, you shall not build a house for my name because you are a man of war and have shed blood. That's the only reason we're given for why David can't do it. David loves God and he fears God, but David was a warrior. He had fought lots of battles and killed lots of men, and God did not want his house of prayer to be built by a, a man of war. Yet, David says, the Lord, the Lord, the God of Israel, chose me from all the household of my father to be king over Israel forever. Of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. He said to me, your son Solomon is the one who shall build my house and my courtyards. So God chooses Solomon to build his, his temple. Super interesting because you know what Solomon means in Hebrew? Peace. The man of peace is chosen to build the house of God. And so then Solomon addresses the leaders about their legacy. Listen to this now. He goes, so now, in the sight of all Israel, he's getting ready to die, the assembly of the Lord and in the presence of our God, 
Keep and seek after all the commandments of the Lord your God so that you may possess the good land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons or to your sons after you forever. So he looks at the crowd, all of the leaders, and he speaks about their inheritance, their legacy. And when he talks to the leaders, he speaks of a legacy and inheritance as the land, right? Riches in a sense. But then he, he turns to his son, Solomon, a man to whom he knew he was going to need to leave a legacy with. This was the man who was going to follow in his footsteps as the king, who was going to rule over the great and powerful nation of Israel. He would be the man who would build this temple for the creator of the heavens and earth. He had no greater need, no greater desire at this moment. One of his last living moments was to leave something behind for this son who he knew was going to be involved in all kinds of tough things. He's desperately going to need something from his father. And so what does David say? What does he long to leave in these last moments? Is it the land? You know, I'm giving the general land to the people, but Solomon, you're in charge. Is it his throne? I mean, this is the great King David. He could have left anything. He could have, he could have left horses and chariots and military might. This is just so powerful. In my mind, Solomon turns his attention away from the people and to his son. And he's got to be thinking of all the things that his beloved son is going to have to endure without him there to help him to provide for him, to protect him. And I can almost picture him grabbing Solomon's face with his two hands and looking into his eyes in front of all the crowd, and maybe the crowd just kind of, just kind of moves away in his mind. And he says, Solomon, it's for you. Know the God of your father and serve him wholeheartedly and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. Of all of the things that, that David, the most powerful man on earth, could have left, the one thing that he cared about giving was his faith, the faith of the Father. I love the language. David says, Solomon, don't just revere. Solomon, don't understand, don't just understand, don't just accept, don't just confess, don't just address God. Solomon, know the God of your father, Solomon. Know my God. It's fascinating, that word in the Hebrew there, it comes from the root word of the word yada. It has the meaning of knowing, but it's more with the heart than the mind. It arises not by standing back and looking at something, but by active, intentional engagement in, in shared experience. My son, know my God. And know them with your heart. Experience them. See, if I could leave anything for my children and my grandchildren, I mean, imagine this is just so powerful. This, this is it. I want them to know the God of their dad. And what David's doing right here in this moment, and what he continues to do as he speaks with Solomon over the next chapter or so, it's now actually scientifically backed up research recognized way on how to pass on faith. I'm going to show you what I mean. Since the year 2000, with his research project called the National Study of Youth and Religion, Dr. Christian Smith, he's a professor of sociology and director of the Center for the Study of Religion and Society at the University of Notre Dame, 
He and his team of researchers have been studying, this is over decades now, okay, the religious practices of teens and young adults. So it's not just, it's not just about kids, it's also into, long into adulthood now. They began with interviews of teens and their parents across religious communities, and these studies have been made with the original cohort at 10-year intervals into adulthood. The book that just recently came out called Handing Down Faith, it, it details the current research and its result. From the book, Dr. Smith um, and his co-author did an in-depth personal face-to-face -face interview with 235 parents all across the country from all different traditions, right? And, and their conclusions... I mean, are fascinating. If you, if you could share my passion of this is the most important thing I can give you. Now, here's the overarching conclusion right from the author's lips. It's both surprising and convicting. Parents, get ready. He writes that the good news is that among all possible influences, parents exert far and away the greatest influence on their children's religious outcomes. Stated differently, the bad news is that nearly all human responsibility for the religious trajectory of children's lives falls on their parents' shoulders. The empirical evidence is clear. In almost every case, no other institution or program comes close to shaping youth religiously as their parents do. In fact, this is a guy at Notre Dame, okay? So he should be defending some of these institutions. He goes on, not religious congregations, not youth groups, not faith-based schools, which is where he gets his paycheck from, not missions and service trips, not summer camps, not Sunday school, not youth ministers or anything else. Those influences can reinforce the influence of parents, but almost never do they surpass or override it. He goes on, what makes every other influence pale in virtual significance, or in virtual into virtual insignificance is the importance, or not, of the religious beliefs and practices of American parents in their ordinary lives. Not on holy days, but every day throughout weeks and years. Here's his conclusion on this. He goes, American youth who have grown up to be religiously committed almost always had parents who were very religiously committed. And everybody needs to hear this next line, though, okay? I need to hear this. Successfully parenting, or excuse me, successfully passing on faith is by no means guaranteed. Everybody hear that? It is by no means guaranteed. Outcomes vary widely. Children choose their own lives. But setting aside exceptional cases, what is nearly guaranteed is that American parents who are not especially committed, attentive, and intentional in passing on their faith will produce children who are less religious than they are, if religious at all. That knowledge, he says, may trouble some parents, but it can also empower. I mean, I, I love this conclusion, and I hate this conclusion. Because here's what we do a lot as believers. We spend so much time blaming the schools and the media and the culture and Facebook and Instagram and music and movies and smartphones and TikTok you name it, it's all their fault. But what the research shows, and by the way, what the writers of the Bible consistently record, nobody has more impact on the faith of children than parents, which means parents and grandparents join me in spending as much time looking in the mirror as we spend looking for scapegoats. 
I not only have the responsibility of handing down a legacy of faith, I have by far the most ability to hand it down. If faith is the most important thing to hand down, right? I want to hand it down the most. It's the most important thing. And if Joan and I, my wife and I, are the most likely to do it, how do we do it? How do we not screw this up? What gives us the best chance? And remember, this study says, I'll get to it in a second, but your influence goes on and on. It doesn't end when they're 12. The scriptures and the study lay out four findings. If you're a parent or a grandparent or a spiritual mother or father to someone, this is worth writing down and praying over every morning. Here's the first, how to pass on your faith. Number one, walk the talk because there is a glass ceiling. The first is simple. You cannot pass on to your children what you don't have. You cannot pour out of an empty cup. Your children cannot know your God if you don't know him. The study, now listen, mom and dads, the study had an interesting finding. They called it the glass ceiling of faith parenting. The glass ceiling is a level of faith above which children, quote, are almost certainly not going to rise. That is, children are not going to turn out to be more religious than their parents. Rarely, if ever, do children rise above the glass ceiling. See, I, I think as parents, sometimes we think our jo- job is to provide a floor of faith for our children that then they'll add to. You know, I gave them this base, and then I think, you know, they'll, they'll, it's just like the American dream. They'll get a little bit better at it. Highly unlikely. Speed of the parent, speed of the child. The study urged parents to believe and practice their faith genuinely and regularly. Children are not fooled by performances. Quote, they see reality, and when that reality is authentic and life-giving, they just might be attracted to something similar. When it comes to your kids, mom and dads, and look, I got some of this right, I got some of this wrong. I'm doing a little introspection too. But when it comes to your kids, let them see your faith. Show them that you read and know the scriptures, but just as importantly, show them that you practice them. Show them that you love God and your neighbors and your enemies. Show them that you give generously to the work of God and to the less fortunate. Show them that you care about the poor and the widow and the orphaned and the marginalized. And show them that you love Jesus. I mean, David didn't have a perfect human history. But as a father to Solomon, Solomon must have heard his father singing these songs out on the rooftop over the years. He had to have known for Solomon this just wasn't a word issue. This was coming out, out or for, for David. He must have known it was coming out of his father's heart. This is why David said to him, serve him wholeheartedly and with a willing mind because the Lord searches all hearts and he understands the intent of the thoughts. Parents, number one, you got to walk the talk. Now, second, it's something called parenting style. This is a whole series we should get into, but we're not going to this morning. They named four possible parenting styles, authoritarian, authoritative, permissive, and passive. When it comes to parenting, by far, the authoritative model of parenting is the most likely way to hand down a legacy of faith. Authoritative, not authoritarian. Here's how the study describes authoritative parents. They combine two crucial traits. First, they consistently hold their children to clear and demanding expectations, standards, and boundaries in all areas of life. Second, 
they relate to their children with an abundance of warmth, support, and expressive care. The combination of clear expectations and effective warmth is powerful in children's developmental formation. Parents who are strict and demanding with their children yet exhibit little emotional warmth or support and act an authoritarian style. They provide their children little opportunity for bonding, engagement, and identification, and it makes it very difficult to internalize an identification with the parent's concerns. Parents who are all affection and empathy, but offer their children few boundaries and standards, they exhibit a permissive parenting style, signaling to their children, it doesn't really matter what you do, including where religion is concerned. And parents who give their children neither effective warmth nor clear expectations display a passive parenting style, which likewise produces little basis for passing on faith. In short, American children are more likely to embrace the faith of their parents when they enjoy a relationship with them that expresses clear parental authority and effective warmth. Such children know their parents hold them to high standards because they love them. They also know that when they fail to meet those standards, there'll be consequences, but never will those consequences, parents, listen to this, but never will those consequences include the withdrawal of love and support. The other three parenting styles do not convey, convey these messages as clearly, and the consequences for passing on religion are empirically evident. It doesn't work. That's what the study said. Here's what the scriptures say. Proverbs, quite famously, those who spare the rod of discipline hate their children. Those who love their children care enough to discipline them. But that's also balanced with what Paul told the Colossians, fathers, don't embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. Do you see that? This is the balance of grace and truth. This is the way God parents us. Actually, you can see David is doing the same thing as he talks to Solomon. He goes, Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you. He's pumping up his son. He's telling him what God is seizing him, that God, Solomon, God has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be courageous and act. There's the standard. Encouragement and expectation. He goes on. King David said to the entire assembly, he says this to everybody about his son. Imagine the, the joy of his son, the, the pride beaming kind of in, in, in Solomon at this moment. My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is still young and inexperienced. And the work is great, for the temple is not for mankind, but for God. You see that? I mean, how were you raised? This is fascinating to think through. Which of those four styles? It might be worth taking some time to think about this week because maybe you struggle with faith because the faith of your fathers isn't all that enticing. How are you parenting? Might be worth talking to your kids about. Third thing, how to pass on your faith, right? You gotta walk the talk, authoritative, not authoritarian. Here's parenting advice number three. If you wanna hand down the, the greatest, most important gift, it, it's this, make sure you talk the walk. You gotta walk the talk, but you gotta talk the walk. Again, from the study, parents who successfully pass on faith, um, uh, faith and practice to their children, here, here it is, as a normal part of family life, during the week, they talk with their children about faith things, what they believe and practice, what it means and implies, and why it matters to them. 
In such families, religion is part of the warp and woof of everyday life. It comes and goes and talks easily. It's not compartmentalized in certain slots of the week, nor is it an unusual or awkward topic. It's part of who we are and what we care about. This does not mean such families talk about religion all the time. But it does indicate to children that faith matters and that it's relevant enough to the rest of life that it should arise normally in ordinary discussions of any number of topics. Again, it's just this matter of parents and families being authentic, right? Not suddenly deciding to sermonize. So right up there with the importance of parents' personal religious faith and the consistency of their practice is this variable, parents. How much is faith talked about during the week in your home? Children who later in life practice some form of their parents' faith report that that faith was a frequent topic of discussion at home during their childhood. And those who say that religion was seldom or never discussed are much less likely to have any faith later on. That's what the study shows. Here's what God says. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you... This is just so fascinating, isn't it? This is thousands of years ago. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your hearts and of your gates. I mean, this, this is a, a, a simple one. Don't just be churchgoers. Be people of faith where the name of Jesus comes up frequently and often at home. Talk about God and his love and his provision and his protection and his ways like all the time, everywhere. Don't limit it to just a prayer before a meal or church on Sunday. Talk about God like he's right there in the house with you. Because he is. Help your kids to believe that. I, I remember one time I went to my mom's house. My mom's probably hearing this online for the first time this morning. Went to my mom's house, and she didn't answer the door, and her car was in the garage. And when you have an elderly parent, that gets you nervous, right? And so Caroline, who was a teenager at the time, had a friend with her, and um, we were in the car, and now I was doing the panicking, I wonder where, where my mother could be, looking around for her. And Caroline just stops, and in front of her friend said, Dad, could we just stop and pray? I was blown away because for Caroline, it wasn't strange to do that. Like, well, wait a minute. Before we do anything else, could we just stop right now and pray? Here's how David said it to Solomon. He said, all this, David said, the Lord may be understand in writing by his hand upon me all the details of this pattern. He's talking about the temple. Then David said to his son Solomon, be strong and courageous. This is like life stuff. Be strong and courageous and act do not fear nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He's not going to fail you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. I love that. Solomon, my God, is with you. And then finally, last piece. These are also super important. How to pass on your faith. Number four, channel influencing church, not surf. What do I mean by that? Parents, you need to stop spending, I need to stop spending as much time channel surfing and more time strategically channeling influence. The study, from again, the study, the idea is that parents channel their children into involvements and relationships that reinforce, not replace, the more, their direct influence. Channeling means subtly nudging, introducing, steering children in the right directions. 
God cha- or good channeling is purposeful, even strategic, but not controlling or overbearing. It creates opportunities. It makes introductions. It encourages involvement. It does not coerce or bribe children into religion. The goal of channeling is for children to personalize, internalize their religious faith and identify over time. When channeling is effective, children, as they approach adulthood, think of themselves more as people who believe and practice their own faith rather than as kids who go along with their parents. Channeling arranges in the lives of children a variety of influences that will help this transaction happen, this transition happen. Listen to the conclusion. So good. Research suggests that among the most important of these channeling influences is the presence of non-family adults in religious congregations who know the children well and can engage them in talk on serious topics beyond superficial chit-chat. The more adults like that are present, the more a church feels like a community or an extended family, which is itself a strong bonding force. Parents who channel effectively know how to encourage the development of such congregational relationships for their children. That should sound a little familiar. You know why? Because here's what the scripture says about the purpose of the church. The early church devoted itself to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer, Everybody was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they met together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That would include their children. This church... This gathering, your regular and deep involvement in community with people here who share your faith and your values and your hopes and your dreams, nothing is more critical. My daughter Courtney, when she was six weeks old, I brought her into the Muchmore's house. Eric's been a head elder here for 20 years. I brought her to Eric's house in a child carrier. It was the first small group she was ever in. And, and then when we needed daycare, Brenda Preddy. She, she was the wife of another elder at the church. Brenda Pretty raised several of my kids, watched them several days a week so that Joan and I could work. And, and, and then Courtney grew up going to, to school every day with uh, the Billings' two daughters. And, and they, they didn't know I was talking about this. We were sitting at dinner the other night, and Courtney was trying to explain her life to Ryan a little bit. And she's like, you don't understand. She's like, for us when we were growing up, people at church, they were like our family. That's the power of the church and community. Is any of this 100%? Heck no. Study says that, and by the way, so do the scriptures. But my faith is the most important thing. In my opinion, you can figure out what you want to hand down more than anything else, but my faith is what I want to hand down more than anything else. If you're with me on that, let's hand the baton of our faith and this church and this community off to the next generation well. And let's do it together. Let's stand and close this song.